Welcome to the Living by Faith podcast. My name is Josh DeGroat, and this is episode number 15. Thanks for listening. This is a podcast where I take a look at news and event items from the culture, theology, and history, and look at all of these things from the perspective of the Christian's life of faith in Jesus Christ. Let's jump in. What if you were, were required to pay for abortions? What if you, being a pro-life person, not that everyone listening is a pro-life, pro-life, but what if you were a pro-life person in every way and you were forced to pay for abortions? Would you have a problem with that? Chances are you would. Well, there's a piece of legislation that is currently keeping taxpayers from having to pay for abortions. It's called the Hyde Amendment. What is the Hyde Amendment? Well, it's an amendment named after the late Illinois Representative Henry Hyde that prohibits federal Medicaid funds from being used for abortion. The year was 1976, just three years after the infamous Supreme Court ruling Roe v. Wade, when Henry Hyde introduced the amendment named after him as part of a larger piece of legislation. Hyde made it clear that he wanted all abortions outlawed, but at the time took an incremental approach and saw the way Medicaid money was appropriated as a way to reduce the number of abortions by not allowing Medicaid funds to be used for abortions. When the amendment passed, it did so by a wide margin in the House, which interestingly at the time was held by the Democrats. And for almost 40 years, this Hyde Amendment was viewed and agreed upon in largely a bipartisan way. But oh, how things have changed. Opposition to the Hyde Amendment in the Democratic Party has been picking up steam in the last five to six years. In 2015, a bill introduced by Democratic Representative Barbara Lee from California introduced a bill seeking to ensure that all receiving health care through the federal government would get coverage for abortions. Thankfully, that bill didn't pass. But the following year, the Democratic Party officially embraced ending the Hyde Amendment in its party platform. It was during the, pre- the Democratic presidential primaries that Hillary Clinton and Bernie Sanders both publicly opposed the Hyde Amendment, the two, the two frontrunners by far, both voicing support for repealing if elected. And in 2018 and 2019, major bills were put forward by the Democrats to repeal the Hyde Amendment. When the 2019 bill was introduced in the Senate, several of the Democratic candidates for president this year that were running for president for this, com- this upcoming election were co-sponsors, including Kamala Harris of California, uh, Kirsten Gillibrand of New York, Bernie Sanders of Vermont, Elizabeth Warren of, of Massachusetts, Amy Klobuchar of Minnesota, and Cory Booker of New Jersey. And recently, interestingly, recently, Joe Biden has changed his long-standing position on the Hyde Amendment. So it's clear, make no mistake, if Joe Biden wins the White House and the Democrats take both chambers of Congress, they will set their sights immediately on the Hyde Amendment. There will be nothing standing in their way. The Democratic Party and their radical push for abortion on demand for any reason or no reason at all knows no bounds. And they even want you, the taxpayer, to fund it. Let's just say the truth. One of the two major parties in American politics is telling the American public, we want to use your money to kill unwanted children. The culture of death has descended to such a degree that they want abortions to be restricted under no circumstances. The question we have to ask is why? Well, in one sense, for those who support abortion, it's the only consistent position. If there's nothing wrong with it, why would there ever be any restrictions for it? 
And why wouldn't the taxpayers fund it for those who can't pay for it themselves? But underneath that, I think there are a couple of reasons we need to consider. And the first is that the left has bought into the myth of human autonomy. Supposedly, the highest good is for a woman to be able to choose to keep her baby or to kill it. For the woman to choose. She has full autonomy whether, whether she wants to keep her baby or kill it. The left believes that a woman ought to be able to do whatever she wants with her body, including terminate the life of the baby in her body, in her womb. It's tragic. It's evil. But it's all wrapped up in the feminist mantra, my body, my choice, human autonomy. Of course, as Christians, we believe there's another body. Uh, right, of a human being in that mother. And therefore, the mother, along with the doctor who performs the abortion, is intentionally ending the life of that baby in direct violation to the law of God. And this leads to the second reason the left is so bent on abortions having no restrictions, and it's this. As long as there is a restriction on abortion, abortion, any restriction on abortion, there will be a stigma attached to abortion. So defenders of the right to abort a baby have been working hard to get rid of the stigma of abortion. They call their position pro-choice. They call their position pro-women. They they call themselves defenders of reproductive rights and women's health care. Abortion to the left has to be seen as a positive good because if it's not, then there's going to be a stigma attached to it. There must be something wrong with abortion and they can't have that. They can't abide that. But as hard as a defender of abortion may try, they can never remove the stigma of an abortion. They can never get rid of it. It's always there. They can try as hard as they want, but it's like all they're doing is suppressing the truth of what is going on. An innocent human being, their life is being snuffed out. Here's the deal. We are made in God's image. His law is written on our conscience. In Romans chapter 2, the Apostle Paul, speaking of the Gentiles who did not receive the written law like the Jews, said this. He said, They also show the work of the law written in their hearts, while their conscience also bears witness, and their conflicting thoughts accuse or even excuse them on that day when, according to my gospel, God judges the secrets of men by Christ Jesus. The conscience of every human being has God's law written on it. Therefore, abortion defenders, they they have the, the law of God written on their conscience, and they know that what they're doing is wrong. And as Christians, we need to remind the advocates of abortion that what they're doing is wrong. We need to remind them that it's God's law written on the conscience that condemns them, and that the only way to be freed is the gospel of the Lord Jesus Christ. This is why the gospel is the power of God for salvation to everyone who believes. This includes a mother who terminates the life of her child, an abortion doctor who has operated on hundreds of women to terminate the lives of their children. This includes politicians who have been pushing for more and more liberal policies concerning abortion. The gospel is the power of God for salvation to everyone who believes. The next section is what I call the catechesis section. 
For centuries, Christians gave themselves to the practice of catechizing, usually in the form of questions and answers with scripture. It was a way of teaching the basics or the doctrines of the Christian faith. I think this practice is sorely missing in our day. Error abounds. Biblical illiteracy abounds, even in the church. And so I think we would benefit tremendously from taking up this practice again. So I want to do my part of promoting it. And uh, and so I'm going through what's called the New City Catechism. It's a new catechism. It, it takes from old ancient creeds and confessions and catechisms and has put it in more modern language. Uh, there's a question and answer and a scripture. There's 52 of them, so one per week. So we're on question number 15. Question 15 is this. Since no one can keep the law, what is its purpose? The answer, that we may know the holy nature and will of God and the sinful nature and disobedience of our hearts and thus our need of a savior. The law also teaches and exhorts us to live a life worthy of our savior. So we've been talking about the law of God, and in and, and the last podcast, we, we, we discussed how no one can keep the law perfectly, but it's still important. More than that, Paul calls the law holy and righteous and good in Romans 7. And our answer gives us three reasons for why the law is holy and righteous and good. First, that we may know the holy nature and character and will of God. Our greatest need is to know God. A.W. Tozier, who was a 20th century pastor and author, said, What comes into your mind when you think of God is the most important thing about you. And without the law, we have a very truncated view of God because the law shows us what God is like. The first table of the law, when you take the Ten Commandments, the first four commandments is what's called the first table of the law. Commands one through four. They show us the nature of God by revealing what he requires of us in relation to him. No other gods before him were to make no graven images, were to not use the Lord's name in vain, and were to remember the Sabbath day and keep it holy. The second table of the law, commands 5 through 10, show us the nature of God by revealing what he requires of us in relation to other people, other image bearers of God. God is holy and righteous and good, and thus his law is as well. The second reason the law is good for us is to show us the sinful nature and disobedience of our hearts, and thus our need of a savior. When we honestly assess how we measure up to God's law, even on our best days, we realize that we fall short. Paul said that nobody can be accepted to God through law-keeping because the law is meant to show us our sinfulness. This is God's intention of the law. In Galatians, Paul likens the law to a schoolmaster or a tutor that leads us to Christ. The law teaches us that we're sinners and that we are rebellious against God, that we're rebels and that we need a savior. And therefore, the law drives us to believe in and cherish and cling to Christ. And the third reason the law is good and righteous and holy is that it's meant to teach us and exhort us how to live worthy of our Savior, how to live a life that pleases the Lord Jesus Christ. The law is good to show us God's standards for living a life that pleases him, living a godly life. 
not as a way of saving ourselves, not as a means of salvation, but as saved people with new hearts and the law of God written on our hearts and as people who long to please the Lord. This is often, I think, a forgotten element of the continuing importance of the law of God for believers. We take the words of Paul in Galatians where he says that we're no longer under the law, and we assume that that means that obedience to God's law is optional. The, The command, you shall not covet, we can take it or leave it. Of course, we're not under the law in, in the sense that our obedience merits anything from God, that it deserves anything from God, or that it earns our salvation, but we are most certainly obligated to obey the law out of our love for Jesus Christ, out of submission to his lordship. The scripture for question and answer 15 is Romans 3.20, and I alluded to this earlier. It says this, for by works of the law, No human being will be justified in his sight, since through the law comes the knowledge of sin. In the history section, I want to continue talking about early heresies that Christians had to contend with. Last time we talked about the heresy of Martianism, named after a guy named Martian. This time I want to take just a brief look at Gnosticism. Gnosticism is probably considered the oldest, most dangerous, and most persistent heresy to plague the Christian church. The name Gnosticism comes from the Greek word gnosis, which, from which we get the word knowledge from. Gnostics believed that the physical creation was bad and evil, and that salvation was achieved through escaping the physical world. They also believed that the goal was to obtain special secret knowledge, hence Gnosticism, Gnosis. And this knowledge was often received through subjective and mystical means, like dreams, visions, private revelations, angelic visitations, and so forth. Early Gnostics also believed that the Old Testament God and the New Testament God were different gods. The God of the Old Testament was a God of law, judgment, wrath, genocide, and so forth, while the New Testament God was kind, loving, and benevolent. Now, this is very similar to Martianism in that sense. Two New Testament books take direct aim at some form of early Gnosticism. Those books are Colossians, written by Paul, and 1 John, written by the Apostle John. This heresy, Gnosticism, continued to dog the church even after the death of the last apostle of Christ, who was the Apostle John. Perhaps the most notable champion to take up the fight against Gnosticism after the Apostles was a man named Irenaeus, who was probably a spiritual grandson of the Apostle John. Irenaeus opposed Gnosticism vehemently, seeing it as a great evil and serious threat to the Christian church. He saw it as a teaching that had crept in like locusts to devour the harvests of the gospel. Irenaeus wrote several books, but the most important or well-known was called Against Heresies, where he takes up the task of refuting Gnosticism with scripture, with logic, and so forth. But Gnosticism is, is extremely persistent, and it hasn't gone away. There really is nothing new under the sun. This ancient heresy has its modern descendants alive and well in our day, and as Christians, we need to be on guard against it. Here are some things we want to guard against in terms of the continuing prevalence of Gnosticism. Here's a few things. First, 
an emphasis on special knowledge through dreams, visions, ecstatic experiences, special revelations, and so forth. Paul warns against paying attention to false teachers who insist on, quote, the worship of angels, going on in detail about visions, puffed up without reason by his sensuous mind, end quote. Colossians 2.18. Much of the new age can be characterized like this, with its emphasis on esoteric teachings and philosophy and ecstatic experiences without objective truth. Maybe you hear people today say things like, your truth, my truth, instead of the way people used to talk when they talked about the truth. Some parts of the Christian church can fall prey to this temptation to emphasize special secret information that you can only get from the person who received it. The second thing we need to guard against is the tendency to separate the spiritual from the physical. Gnostics deny the incarnation of Christ. They thought, how could the Son of God take on flesh? Because in their worldview, in ancient Gnosticism, the physical creation was seen as bad and evil, and salvation was achieved through living on a higher plane than the physical and somehow being liberated from the physical. But in the Christian gospel, we recognize the goodness of God's creation. Of course, it's been marred by sin, but God created everything good. And as Christians, to enjoy physical things like good food, sex within marriage, and enjoying creation is a good and righteous thing. And the third thing we need to guard against is separating faith from works. Remember, in Gnosticism, since the goal is secret, special, mystical knowledge, and the tendency was to separate the spiritual from the physical, the natural result was to separate faith from obedience. Believing from doing. What matters is what you think, right? It's about the special knowledge. It's what you think. It's what you feel. It's what you believe inwardly. It's not about what you do. The Apostle John refutes this way of thinking, this this kind of um, dualism, if you will, when he says in the book 1 John, Let no one deceive you. The one who practices righteousness is righteous just as he is righteous, just as Christ is righteous. Christianity is a public religion with public knowledge and public revelation. We are to live our lives in the real world with real bodies that God has given us in order that we may know God and do his will with our hands and feet for his glory. And salvation is not about escape from our bodies and the world through some kind of secret knowledge. In fact, the consummation of our salvation is the Lord Jesus Christ coming in glory and establishing his kingdom in a new world, new perfected earth, a physical earth with dirt. And we will be with him in new resurrected bodies forever. This is the Christian hope. It's what Paul calls the blessed hope. In Romans 8, Paul says, For in this hope we were saved. Not the hope of escape from the body, the hope of a new immortal one. Thanks again for listening to the Living by Faith podcast. If you found it helpful, please subscribe, like, and share. Until next time, may the grace of the Lord Jesus Christ and the love of God and the fellowship of the Spirit be with you all.